You're listening to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey. I'm honored to share with you conversations for the health of all things. In these special episodes, I am joined by guests on the show to explore how the osteopathic concept presents in their lives and learn about their personal and professional stories. Ranging from osteopathic physicians to those familiar with osteopathic treatment to those associated with osteopathic medicine in a variety of settings, these conversations provide new perspective on lighting the way for the path to best health. Please note that while I am a physician and may interview other physicians, this podcast is intended to share general information and encourage discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast and in any linked materials is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. Welcome to This Osteopathic Life. This is Dr. Amelia Beakey back with episode three in the Conversations series. I'm excited to be joined today by Dr. Megan Babb, who's a family medicine physician in California with a strong interest and desire to serve the underserved in medicine. And she works a lot with writing. I'm so excited to have her join us and tell her story in osteopathic medicine. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've loved following your work for a long time, and I'd be interested to know how you got started way back when in osteopathic medicine from the beginning. Well, um, I was um, working, um, doing some some, uh, shadow time with some doctors prior to med school. And um, quite a few of them who I'd worked with said, you need to consider osteopathic medicine. At the time, I hadn't heard of it. Um, But when I started um, applying to med school, I was like, well, what the heck? I'm going to apply to all of them. And um, when I started learning about the philosophy, I really fell in love with it. It resonated very strongly with me, Um, mainly because I'm very much a doer. I I need to get my hands into things and... um, uh, really embrace all the senses in order to learn the best that I can. And that was very apparent that that's what the osteopathic method was about. Um, in fact, our very first day of school was, um, sitting there was a bag of, of, um, items and just textiles. Like you put your hands in the bag and and trying to determine what was inside of it without looking and that really started the journey on, on learning um, how to use the skills of feeling um, with the hands to help diagnose and treat the human body. And it's been um, a growing journey ever since then. Yeah, I love that, that opportunity from day one to start experiencing and I love that concept of feeling, right? So how have you seen that expand from that first day? We're talking about palpatory skills, you know, hands-on. Have you seen your osteopathic experience expand and encourage you to practice in that way going forward through those latter years of school and into training? Absolutely. I've never, never been afraid of touching. I think it's an important part of just um, the human connection for one, but two, I think that there's an energy that exists in really confident hands, right? And so I feel like when we're able to put our our hands on a shoulder or 
um, to palpate an abnormality or even just putting our hands on someone else's hands to comfort them. <clears throat> There's never a hesitancy to do that because you learn very early that human interaction really calls for the ability to transfer energy through the touch. Um, and that creates a very, um, a very natural way to connect to patients, I feel. And so for me, whether it's interacting with a baby or it's a adolescent, an adult or a, an elderly uh, patient, I feel like that small embrace, just to reach the hand out and touch is always very welcoming. And it really um, creates a um, more natural environment to have a conversation because at the end of the day, that's really all that practicing medicine is about. It's about having a conversation um, with different individuals, listening, and then using the hands to then further um, identify the problems that are that are occurring. Yeah, I think that's so important and so powerful. And I'm curious, you know, I do in my clinical practice, almost 100% osteopathic manipulative treatment as my modality, you know, of interacting with patients. But I've always known and felt that osteopathy is more than touch as well. And particularly in this time, when I've had to move to telemedicine, finding new ways to still connect energetically with patients. And I'm curious, what you've noticed if you've had to move into any telemedicine during this time as well, or how you might be interacting differently with people clinically or otherwise when we are limited now with this physical distancing that's required of us? It's <clears throat> a great question. I um, didn't realize, and, and I think this came about more with the wearing of the masks, is that I didn't realize how much communication is done with the face. Um, and in fact, when we first started wearing masks on a regular basis, like I felt like telling my, telling my patients, like I'm laughing, like I'm smiling underneath this. Like, I think that's funny. Cause I have a very quiet laugh. Mm -hmm. Um, and so what I find about telemedicine that I love that I don't get in front of a patient is that they get to see my entire face and I get to see their entire face. And so there's so much in the conversation that exists, especially with kids, um, I have four of my own. Um, my youngest is three. My oldest is seven. And um, so much of our communication and so much of our distraction techniques or our ability, ability to redirect is in the face and in the, the way that we're able to um, really change the demeanor um, of a situation. And so for telehealth, I've really relied on that. Um, because there's a palpable energy when two people sit in a room that's, you know, no more than like, what, 10 by 10, these exam spaces. Um, and so patients can easily feel that energy. But when you have a computer um, between both you and the patient, um, and it's via telemedicine, really all you have is your ability to interact with them. Um, not just with words, but also facial expressions. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been my, my, my favorite. My favorite is waiting for our patients, for PEDS patients that come on 
Um, and I replaced myself with like a stuffed animal, <laughs> um, you know, just to lighten the the situation. Cause they're a little gun shy, a little nervous. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, so it's, there's a way to make it fun and interactive, um, while still being able to apply those very humanistic type of pieces of the healing process. Um, because yes, in medicine, he, a lot of healing is obviously diagnostics and treatments, but there's also a lot wrapped up in, um, just the human interaction. Yeah. I think that's so important to remember. And I, have been working with osteopathic physicians who specialize in osteopathic manipulative medicine throughout this time and kind of reminding ourselves and each other that we can listen and interact with our head, our hands, and our heart and really staying in all of those spaces in order to connect more effectively. I'd like to learn more. You mentioned a passion of yours is working with underserved and vulnerable populations. Tell me more about that and how you see osteopathic medicine perhaps supporting you in that endeavor. Well, I think that from a patient perspective, there's always going to be the vulnerable populations um, that exist Um, in this current um, time, as I hear my children (laughs) real life, right? (laughs) Mom life. There's always the vulnerable populations from the patient perspective where we're talking about like the minority races, those who... um, you know, are in a certain situation that meets certain, like if we're talking about potentially like colon cancer patients, right? Like we're talking about for each disease state potentially has a different vulnerable patient population. But on top of that, just going outside of medicine, there are vulnerable populations of, of people everywhere, right? When we talk about um, what we're going through, like with COVID, say back in March, um, when we were really starting to struggle with PPE testing. It was really starting to hit us hard. Our vulnerable population in the healthcare world at that time was really our East Coast colleagues, Mm -hmm. mainly up in New York. Um, And also colleagues who didn't have an opportunity to have a voice. So the thing about writing is that advocacy can be found everywhere um, and the need for it can be found everywhere. And I feel that being in the state of California, I'm in a unique place in that um, hospital systems can't employ physicians, gives us some flexibility. I work in a large um, multi-specialty group, about 500 physicians. And so and we support each other. And that lends itself for me to be able to give my voice to other physicians who don't get to have one because of various different reasons. Main reason being employed by a hospital system. And how did you find your voice in writing? What drew you into writing as a medium for advocacy? Um, The first one started with Justin Timberlake. Vaccination situation um, obviously has kind of been a tumultuous like uh, conversation. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be, but it is, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so one day I was um, driving to work and on the radio, like, I have a commute that's four hour or four, four uh, miles. So ends up being like seven minutes. So in this seven minutes, all I'm hearing is how Justin Timberlake um, and Jessica Biel have decided not to vaccinate their kids. Um, I thought to myself, why, why is this news? Like, why are we allowing this to be news? Like, I'm not hearing 
you never hear about whether or not these celebrities decide whether or not they're going to get mammograms or paps or colonoscopies. So why, why is it that vaccines become the thing that they're so vocal about, right? Or the things that the preventative medicine portion of, of healthcare that gets targeted and, and, and talked about. Um, and so that um, inspired me to, to write just kind of an open floor, um, open letter medicine, uh, or open med, uh, yeah, an open letter um, to him in regards to like, why are we hearing about the fact that you guys are choosing not to vaccinate? And like on the surface, it, you'd think, God, another celebrity, you know, making their rounds. But at the same time, there's a huge responsibility, you know, just like as a physician, um, I I struggle with COVID and and seeing other physicians who aren't taking this seriously, Um, whether or not based on opinion, right? We have, we have an obligation to uphold um, an ethical and moral standard to make sure that we're always doing the right thing for our patients and our communities. And I feel like as a celebrity, um, there is a, a responsibility that lies there too. Yeah. Um, because you have the first time really in history where you have these people who are put on these platforms and in a matter of seconds can disseminate information to millions and millions of people. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden to those people, that information could be held as truth. And I think that um, the other thing is, is that physicians historically have not been vocal and it hasn't been really since this last decade where I think that we've seen like this huge push for physicians to be vocal on social media. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, there's a balance there too, making sure that it's done tactfully. Um, but the need for it is there. Yeah. And so that's kind of what started it for me was that first open letter to him. And then it just continued. Mm -hmm. And tell me about when we think about the tenets, which one really speaks to you or resonates with you when you're writing these pieces, when you're calling for physicians to stand up, to find their voice, to have these calls to action. That's kind of how I see your pieces. And I wonder what that calls to you from, you know, do you see structure and function coming up in there? Do you see the self-healing capacity? Like what might emerge as inspiration or maybe encouragement for others when you're putting these pieces out there that are, you know, when I hear to you, I hear this beckoning, right? Do this. You can do this. You should do this. It's possible for you to do this. We need for us all to do this. I wonder which of those might underlie the spirit of your writing. Well, I think that innately physicians who go into primary care have that within them. Um, And I say this all the time is that my role in family medicine is not fancy. It's not glamorous. It's not considered like, you know, uh, largely heroic. I'm a individual who got an education and my job is to have daily conversations with people about their health. And so I think that that creates this place of needing to 
um, be very um, content with having a voice. For me, I think it stems from a lot of different things. Um, one being primary care, but two also being the only um, female to brothers where I always felt like, like things had to be even Steven growing up or like my little brothers need always needed to have a voice. Um, and that's just, it's just who I am. And I think that it comes from seeing physicians particularly sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and have our altruism really exploited because they know that based on our personalities, it's really difficult for us to say no. It's very difficult for, for us to be able to say, I'm not going to, um, no, I, it's, it's five o'clock. It's there's still work to do. I can't leave, mm-hmm. you know, so we'll, we'll keep working until the work is done. Mm-hmm. And we also have a tendency to not want to dump, right? So we will we'll take on more ourselves to prevent our colleagues from having to take on more. Mm-hmm. I think the um, I think that there's been a huge shift in the the people who are going into medicine, mm-hmm. and. I remember um, prior to going to med school, um, I remember, and I, I can't remember where I was. I was shadowing, but I remember very specifically a physician telling me, don't go. Like, don't go into medicine. And I remember being so puzzled by that. Why? and telling me how much things were changing, right? And this is, I started med school in 2008. So this is probably like 2007-ish. Mm-hmm. And my generation doesn't know anything different. Mm-hmm. But what medicine doesn't realize, or what the process, the healthcare system doesn't realize is that They've also never met physicians like us, mm-hmm. right? Like we're a new wave of physicians coming through and saying, yeah, this is not okay. Not okay. Yeah. Um, and so we, we often spend time, what feels like raging against a machine. Can't tell you how many times I feel like I'm staring at a steel wall. Mm-hmm. They can hear me. They know we're out here, but we can't stop. Yeah. And where have you seen your greatest successes so far? Be it through writing, be it through patient care, be it through direct connection. Where have you seen the most hope or maybe cracking through, you know, putting some light through that wall? Is there anything you found recently that's been inspiring for you? Yeah, I mean, I think the there's been two. The piece that I wrote about COVID, the open, um, the um, exposing America's uh, ugly truths in the healthcare system, mm-hmm. <clears throat> that I think changed a lot in people's perspective. 
I had physicians emailing me from all over the country saying, I had no idea that this was happening in other parts of the country. Um, one specifically, the medical director down in um, Huntington Beach mm-hmm. was shocked. Now, as physicians, I think it's really easy for us to get stuck in a bubble, right? Because we, again, are working, 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 and don't really have a whole lot of time to put our head above water. And when we do, it's to do the things that we need to do, like mom duties Mm -hmm. and wife duties. And so it's, it's very easy to kind of get in this place where you really only have the attention to focus on what's immediately around you. Yeah. And so that brought a lot of awareness to physicians. Um, many physicians in um, Southern California sent me just stuff like hospital systems that had so much excess said, we don't know where to send it. We don't know how to get in touch with anyone, but here we're sending it to you. And so then all of a sudden it was like, okay, well, I've always PPE. Now what do I do with the PPE? Because I can't just let it sit here. And so it started being shipped off to physician. It was like a physician, physician handoff, as opposed to like a healthcare system being the intermediate between. And so I reached out to physicians um, from residency programs, because those are the ones that are typically the ones that are in the, you know, um, lower socioeconomic areas. Mm-hmm. and in higher need just started distributing it and sending it out um and that was a huge testament to the camaraderie that can occur when physicians start speaking to each other yeah um and then most recently this piece that I wrote about um sexual harassment in in, in medicine mm-hmm. sexism misogyny Um, it's a pervasive problem. Um, and I'm proud to say that my group is making huge, huge steps forward, objective steps, not just, we're going to have more trainings, but going as far as having, um, objective individuals coming in and looking at our system and that's a huge huge win and it's not just a huge win for women it's a huge win for everyone because when we can recognize our own biases patient outcomes are better physician retention is better work-life balance is better um so It just comes from knowing that those things, I mean, if I can write and know that some of these things are changing in a positive direction as a result, then that's, I'm content. I'm happy. That's all, that's all that I need. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important to notice because we might often think, well, it's just words on a page or is it going to do anything meaningful? And we have had these surface level solutions for a long time, you know, like those token trainings, you check the box. Okay. I'm aware. 
but now getting to these tangible results. And I love that you said that, you know, medicine's never seen physicians like us before, right? So yes, things are changing, but it's changing all around. And we have the opportunity to harness that. And I'm so encouraged. And what would you say to someone who might be writing, but not sure how to get the word out? You know, like how do they find a platform where they might get more people to take notice of what they're writing? What would you give as encouragement there to someone getting started in that arena? Um, I think the biggest thing is to find like-minded people. I think that's really important because there's power in numbers for one and and there's power in a collectiveness that happens. Um, you know, when, I think one of the greatest things that that social media has done for um, for our society is when it's especially with Facebook started moving towards communities, and so having communities of people that can be brought together with similar interests and likes um, to have discussions and to be able to all of a sudden have access to people that you didn't even know existed, right? Like mm-hmm. ten years ago, like we would have not ever connected, mm-hmm. right? Because you're where you are, I'm where I am. And there was never a place for that connection to occur. Right. But now through Facebook, through communities that, um, that you and I are both a part of, that we can see the power of, um, it allows the... Um, it allows for the um, intersection of people who otherwise wouldn't have ever crossed paths. Mm -hmm. And so for people who are just starting to write, I think um, they have something to say. The important thing is to do two things is one is to join a community of similar minds. If there isn't one, then create one. And two, you have to read. Reading is so important. It's not just about writing pieces and sending them, but it's important. It's so important to read what other people write as well. Um, Because again, advocacy is not just about the person. You know, me writing is not just about me. Me writing is for the better of our profession and, and hopefully the better outcome and health of our patients. And so when one person is successful. We all are. So part of that is realizing that, especially with women, and one of the things that really inspired me to work in empowering women was the speech that Michelle Williams gave not too long ago um, when she said, women, we need to start putting each other first because God knows men have been doing that forever. Mm -hmm. And so it's super important to me that um, I focus on dedicating time to lift women up and to empower them. And a great example is the chair of my department of family medicine for my group. She's a very young, tenacious, fantastic physician. Who's she's a black woman And what she has been able to do single-handedly for our group is probably a huge reason why I stay with my group is because she 
by her being in her position, that's a win for everyone, everyone. Because not only does she, is she able to help represent um, minority race, being a black woman, but she's also able to represent a marginalized group as a woman. And she's able to advocate for family physicians. Yeah. The least glamorous physician out there. <laughs> yeah, that's so powerful. And I love the idea that amplifying really is for all of us. You know, oftentimes we think lifting someone else up can take away the spotlight, but it really just widens it. You know, it makes it so there is actually space for more of us. And I love hearing that you're able to make these connections, you know, through the PPE distribution, both in receiving them and being able to distribute them to others and really breaking down those silos in medicine. And for me is one of the missions that I have. And right now I'm working with students across two different medical schools across the country. And a lot of times it's like, we're doing what we're doing. It's our way. It's the right way. It's the only way. And we don't really look to one another, you know, for solutions and finding ways that we can still be competitive in a good way, right? Encourage each other to do our best and to learn from one another and to share best practices. And writing, it sounds like you're breaking down a lot of those boundaries that way. You're noticing these virtual communities. We're seeing now how we can interact with patients remotely. You know, so we're accessing them. Do you see any major challenges when you start working across systems, locations, spaces that are worth addressing? You know, so sometimes seeing those challenges is the way we can actually get to the solutions there. Yeah, I mean, there's <clears throat> there's always the other side of the coin. And I think that, you know, for every new up and coming generation, right, there's equally um, an opposite generation who's been in practice for a really long time, who's maybe not quite ready, but are now heading out as a new generation of close to being retired physicians. <clears throat> and if you think about it, like I was thinking about this the other day and I was speaking with a physician um, who just retired in June and um, he had been practicing for 40 years, 40 years. And you think about all the, the advancements in medicine that have occurred in just 40 years. I mean, my God, like HIV hadn't even come on the scene yet. Mm-hmm. when he started practicing like that wasn't even in his textbooks yeah because it just it hadn't it hadn't it hadn't come to be yet and so I think about these physicians and how vast their knowledge is in terms of you know pathophysiology and drugs and disease conditions and the mentorship that they can provide from that perspective um, is immense. But I think sometimes it also creates perhaps a challenge in recognizing what newer generations face, right? I mean, it's kind of very similar to that, the, that, that saying that you hear, you know, like that as a kid, you hear, Oh, when I, you know, from our grandparents. So when I was a kid, I had to do this, this, and this. And you hear from your parents. And then you tell yourself as a kid, oh, I'm never going to say that when I'm a parent. And then all of a sudden you're a parent and you're like, okay, like I can see that there was this difference, right? Mm -hmm. 
But the truth is, is that medicine for good reason requires time to persist. Mm -hmm. And if we think about our world, it's like, it moves like the Titanic, right? It just moves really slowly, but it needs to move slowly because if we move too fast, right, we potentially put people in harm's way. Mm-hmm. And what I don't think physicians have quite yet gotten complete hold of is the fact that in the past, everyone left us alone. Like everyone, you know, like no one, no one saw medicine as like this like huge money-making opportunity. Mm-hmm. So everyone just kind of did their own thing, right? And, and, and medicine was kind of content to just run the studies that they would run and practice medicine as we would practice medicine. But then along the way, there was a change in the systems. And all of a sudden, medicine became a very profitable entity that people wanted to be a part of. And so a great example of where us, we're on that Titanic, we're moving really slowly, but all the other business practices and technologies around the world moves at like lightning speed, right? Mm -hmm. So here we are doing our thing and then we pick our head up in water and we're like, wait, what? What just happened? Wait, Mm -hmm. I I have to treat someone's pain based on what they say and I'm gonna get, I'm going to get uh, slapped on the hand if I don't treat it appropriately based on what a corporate, a corporate mandate states, right? And so we can see what happens when that happens. When there's like this huge push to make a change in medicine, we get something like the opiate crisis, right? Perfect example. People come in, they, they don't respect our practices. They don't respect that things in medicine require time to evolve appropriately and they come in and they just like bum rush us. Now all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm given Dilaudid for, you know, broken arm. Mm -hmm. I used to recommend ibuprofen. Mm -hmm. Right. And so what I think the, the older generation struggled with is recognizing that my generations and the younger generations of physicians coming out, I think we're ready to like take over the lead on that. Like Mm -hmm. let us, let us be the ones that really help to advocate against this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is that I think at the end of a career, it becomes exhausting. Right. And why wouldn't it, you know? And so I ask, of, and I ask this a lot in, in when I give talks and, and lectures and I'm having conversations with physicians, I ask this wholeheartedly. And, and the truth is, is at what point does experience inhibit growth? Mm-hmm. Because the kind of growth that we're looking for is very different and it involves equity. Mm-hmm. And it involves having an opportunity. It requires an opportunity for us to say, wow, things have been done the same way for many, many years, but I'm not right. And I need someone else to come in 
and I'm going to take a back seat and let them do the work. Yeah, I think that's such an important point where when we know how we've done it for so long, it's hard to break free from that. And that's kind of human nature, even though, even when we know it's not working, we stay with what's familiar. You know, we say, well, it's not working great, but I know it. So at least I can prepare for some of those things that aren't so great. Even if right one step over, it could be so much better, but it's scary. It's scary to lead that. And I love that idea of how do we bridge that gap and not cast out, you know, experience and, you know, the, previous generations, but how do we work together? How do we draw on the good, you know, from what has been so supportive in that experience and say, okay, like we're going to be a bit of the safety net or we're going to take that leap. We're willing to walk into the unknown for the opportunity mm-hmm. for something different to emerge. And that's really how osteopathic medicine began, right? It's okay. Like we're doing some things. They're not really working great. Our job is to say, what else? What better? Yeah. And to keep asking that question, you know, I, I think that's so important to hold that curiosity there. I'm curious for you, and we're seeing right real life happen for you. In what ways do you support yourself during this time? Like writing sounds like an outlet, but it really is helping others. It sounds like maybe helping you, right? You're seeing, like you said, you can feel content when your pieces are seen. What are some other ways you find to support, if we think, body, mind, and spirit for yourself, particularly during this time of COVID? Um, well, for one, I have an incredibly, incredibly supportive husband. Um, he and I met my first year of med school and, um, never once, even to this day, has he ever asked me to put him in front of, you know, studying classwork, you know, preparing for boards, working a shift. Um, so he is a huge part of that, but the, the biggest thing that I do for me, to be honest, is not any particular thing other than I give myself permission to really, um, keep the bar low. And, and, and people kind of like always like, you know, raise an eyebrow when I say that. And, and what I mean by that is that I don't stress about stuff that really doesn't matter. I mean, a good example is my husband and I, we, we bought the cheapest house in this nice, the nicest neighborhood that we could, because we're like, we're going to fix it up. And we're three years into this project of like renovation. And now we're we lived in a trailer with our four kids for nine months (laughs) and we still don't have baseboards in some of the rooms and, 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 you know, the trim's not in and there's a couple doors that don't even have door handles. But my point is, is that I give myself permission to not care, to say stuff doesn't matter. just doesn't matter. If people come over to my home and they look and they're like, you don't have door handles then they're probably not people who I'd be inviting in my home anyway, mm-hmm. you know? And so the greatest gift that I give to myself is allowing myself to not have to be as on top of everything as I do with my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are things that are very important to me. And that is making sure that my kids go to bed knowing that they're loved, that they go to bed laughing, that they go to bed fed, 
and then every now and then they go to bed clean. <laughs> you know, we can get we can get a shower bath and that's great. But I set the expectation really low because as I said earlier, my commute home is is four miles, seven minutes. And at the end of my day every day, I used to put this pressure on myself because I used to say, what I gave to my patients, my kids and my husband deserve too. Mm-hmm. So I have seven minutes, seven minutes to fill my tank back up, mm-hmm. to like get rid of all the stress from the day and amp myself up to be this perfect wife and mom. Because we give so much of ourselves to our patients that I felt like it's not fair that my kids don't get that. It's not fair that my kids spent all day without me and I spent, you know, 10 hours on patient care and feeling exhausted. It's not their fault. It was a choice I made. And so I started slipping into this, into uh, um, a depression because I felt like I suck at this really bad because I'd come home and I was so tired and I would try to be so hard to be someone that I wasn't that when I finally realized that that energy that we talk about bottling kids, you know, their energy, mm-hmm. we just bottle yeah. that up. And, <laughs> I thought to myself, they have so much of that. And when I walk in the door, they're so ready to give to me that I'm going to actually take it. Mm-hmm. And so every day to the, from the point and when this realization happened, which was a couple years ago, even till now, is that when I walk through the door, the very first thing I do is I drop everything, go down into the playroom, and I basically like fall on the floor and they jump on me and we play and it's instant reading of books and it's instant mom, let me show you this, what I did today. And and I allow them to fill me up. Mm-hmm. And that has made a huge difference because then all of a sudden when I do that and the expectation is, is that they need nothing of me other than just me physically being there with listening ears and watching eyes. That's really it. Mm -hmm. And that has taken so much pressure off of me. Um, And so that's probably the, the best gift that I have given myself and that anyone could give to themselves is to just give themselves permission to not care about the stuff that just at the end of the day just doesn't matter. Yeah. I think that's so powerful, that ability to receive. And like you said, we spend so much time outwardly giving and doing and organizing and structuring, but to just be present and receive that gift from other people, just like you Mm -hmm. found in your physician relationships, and so powerfully with your kids. That's so encouraging. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. As we wrap up here, one thing I like to find out from each of my guests is how you see yourself for the health of all things. And we've heard that in so many ways. And I wonder if there's anything that encompasses it for you, one vision or the different ways you might see yourself being for the health of all things. I think... For me, it's just um, really just comes down to my voice. I, 
I really don't, um, I, I've never been one of those people who was like super, super smart and like gifted. Always, always had to work hard. Um, I couldn't ever let anything skate by, you know, um, I had to attend every lecture. I had to go to office hours with my professors. So I had to get, do <clears throat> a lot to just maintain, right. To, to make sure that I was passing my classes and, and doing well in med school. And <clears throat> so for me, I don't know everything. I have to look things up all the time. Um, I, I don't have one of those skill sets that can just like remember and memorize like the, you know, the appropriate dose for every single situation, whether it be, you know, something like Benadryl and, and Tylenol and Motrin, like for whatever reason, I just, I'm that person who just like, I just always have to have kind of like a cheat sheet, cheat sheet by me for those kind of things. So I've never seen myself as one of those like naturally gifted physicians in terms of like academics and the brains, but boy, do I have a voice. And I was raised in a family that allowed me to have that voice. And that I think makes a huge difference in <clears throat> my ability to stand up and speak for other people who need a voice. Um, because I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of the truth. You know, I, we live our lives by these guiding principles of objective truths. And I think one of the most damaging things that can happen in any system, any society, is when subjective truths get disguised as objective ones. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, I always have that in my back pocket that I know that this is the right thing to stand up for because I have the objective data to show that it needs it needs to be advocated for. Mm -hmm. You know, this great study that just came out showing the morbidity and mortality rates of, of minority children in the hands of, of white physicians. Yeah. My God, like, makes me tear up even thinking about it now that, that there are physicians out there who will choose not to read that mm -hmm. and accept that as objective truth when it is. Um, and so for me, the thing that encompasses me with everything that I do, whether it be work, being a mom, being a wife, being a neighbor, is knowing that people can always count on the fact that what I say always is going to come from a place that is backed up by data because that's where my opinions come from. Mm -hmm. That's where my voice comes from is looking at the data and recognizing well, this isn't right. We're, we're doing X, Y, and Z, but this data is telling us that we need to be doing A, B, and C. So why are we doing that? And so I think it's uh, one of my colleagues who I've grown to really admire and adore. Uh, he's actually a, um, um, he does uh, like gynog. And <clears throat> he said to me one time, he said, Megan, you're the good kind of trouble. <laughs> and that was the first time 
that someone has, let's be honest, that was the first time that a man outside of my family has respected the voice that I have, because most of the time it's, it's trying to be, it's, you know, others trying to diminish it. Mm-hmm. But that is exactly what I want to continue to be is the good kind of trouble. Yeah. I love that. I think that's so important and echoes so much of what we're doing here in osteopathic medicine. And I see in so many different avenues for you. And I thank you for your work. It's really spoken to me. I'll be sharing articles in the show notes. And where can people reach you? What's the best way to find you and follow the work that you're doing? What would you recommend? Um, Instagram and Twitter are, are great, um, options. Um, but I'm very easily accessible. I, um, I return emails, I return messages, um, may not always get to them right away, but, but I do cause it's important. Um, but yeah, so the best way is probably Instagram and Twitter. And what would be your handle on those? Um, I, my, it's a very good question. Um, my Instagram is at MB at, at MBAB1522. And my Twitter, I don't even know off the top of my head. We'll put it in the notes. I feel a little yeah. better with that, that you don't even know for as active as you are. <laughs> You're like, I'm just there. I'm just there being me. <laughs> you know, it's funny because they always just get kind of like copied and pasted at the bottom mm-hmm. of uh, each article that, yeah. So, yeah, well, I love it. We'll put the links to the most recent articles in there. Thank you for your continued work and happy to have you in the profession, speaking for for women in medicine, speaking for patients. So great. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of This Osteopathic Life, Conversations for the Health of All Things. Please take a moment to like, rate, and review the podcast. And if you would like to be featured as a guest or know someone who you'd like to nominate as a guest for an episode, please let me know at thisosteopathiclife at gmail.com. Visit the website at thisosteopathiclife.com or visit me on Instagram and Facebook at This Osteopathic Life. Thank you so much for listening.